This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with Andrew Besovich about his new book, America's War for the Greater Middle East. Andrew is a graduate of West Point who served for 23 years as a commissioned officer in the United States Army and has taught international relations at Boston University. He's the author of eight books, all of them good. Among them, Breach of Trust and the Limits of Power. All right, Andrew, let's begin at the beginning. The, the Greater War in the Middle East, you start by saying that from the end of World War II until 1980, virtually no American soldiers were killed in action while serving in the Greater Middle East. Since 1990, virtually no American soldiers have been killed anywhere else. What is the Greater Middle East, and what caused the shift from war, Cold War, war in Europe, war in Vietnam, to the Middle East? Well, well I use the term Greater Middle East uh, to refer to the, the, the realm within the larger Islamic world where the United States has been militarily engaged since 1980. And the story I try to tell is of a, a war uh, that began in 1980 and that continues down to the present moment that over the period of three and a half decades has occurred on an ever wider scale without ever coming anywhere close to achieving success. Now, I think m- most, most people listening to this probably say, well, gosh, I know we've been involved in a war since uh, 2001, but they may not get the 1980 date. So let me explain that. Uh, In 1980, Jimmy Carter promulgated what came to be called the Carter Doctrine. And that was a a statement that said that the Persian Gulf uh, had become a U.S., a vital U.S. national security interest, and therefore a place worth fighting for. It's important to emphasize that prior to 1980, the, the United States didn't view the Persian Gulf, or just about anywhere else uh, in the Middle East, to be worth fighting for. We were prepared to fight in Western Europe. We had fought in East Asia, uh, in Korea, and in Vietnam, and continued to maintain very substantial forces in the Asia-Pacific. But prior to 1980, we weren't geared up to fight uh, in places like, like the Persian Gulf. Carter's statement changes all that. Carter's statement begins the process of militarizing U.S. policy in that part of the world. Uh, the, 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 the wheels of the national security apparatus begin to turn, putting in place plans, capabilities to intervene with armed force, and those capabilities very quickly turn into action. And it hasn't ended since. What is the action that prompts the Carter Doctrine? What, what are you, Eagle Claw, is that the beginning? Well, Eagle Claw is the first actual military undertaking, and that is the Iran hostage rescue mission that occurs in the spring of 1980. But we need to, we need to ask ourselves, well, why, why, why the Iran hostage rescue mission? And, of course, 
there we do get to the the impetus uh, behind the Carter Doctrine, which I think really consists of three things. The first two things were, A, the uh, Iranian Revolution, overthrowing the Shah, seeming to pose a new threat, the, the, uh, a, a hostile Iran, seeming to pose a new threat to the, to the Gulf. And B, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979, which was interpreted incorrectly, but interpreted by people in Washington as indicating that the Soviets were on the march and could themselves uh, be headed in the direction of the Persian Gulf. So those were the two external factors. The internal factor, I think, was Carter's own vulnerability as a president who was hoping to be re-elected to a second term in 1980. In 1979, and by January of 1980, the economy was performing poorly. Carter was seen to be weak, and indeed the Iranian revolution, the hostage crisis, the Soviet action, all seemed to confirm that he was weak. Uh, and so in order to, be, to, to rebut that perception and to make a successful, what he hoped would be, a successful run for a second term, he needed to look tough. And drawing this line in the sand, as it were, uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, was, a way, was a way to look tough. And how does the war for the greater Middle East expand in the 1980s during the administration of Ronald Reagan? Yeah, well, I think this is one of the interesting things because Carter, and I don't think for, that Carter himself in any way uh, anticipated the consequences of his, of his doctrine. I don't think he intended uh, for the United States to embark upon an open, open-ended war. And his statement specifically refers to our interest in the Persian means access to oil. But what very soon begins to happen is that the, that the, the places where the United States undertakes its war in various quarters of the Islamic world begins to expand beyond uh, the Persian Gulf. So under Ronald Reagan, for example, we've got a, what is advertised as a peacekeeping intervention in Lebanon that ends disastrously uh, in 1983 with the, with the Beirut bombing that kills over uh, 200 American, under American, American Marines. We've got Reagan's jousting with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. We also have Reagan involving himself in an ongoing war in the Persian Gulf. I call it the first Gulf War, although it's more commonly known as the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 1988. I think the key point to emphasize is that under Reagan, as the first, the first president who really begins to operationalize the Carter Doctrine, there really is no overarching strategy or, or, or coherent sense of purpose. And in that sense, the incoherence of U.S. policy under Reagan really continues to a very great extent under his successors. All right, it's, we're spreading to Lebanon, Libya, Afghanistan, and now and the first Gulf War, which is our backing of Hussein against Iran, 1980-1988. And now tell us about the second Gulf War. Well, and, and of course the two are, yeah, and, you, and the two are connected, and, and you, I think you put your finger on a, a key point, almost entirely forgotten by Americans, uh, but back in the 1980s, we were supporting Saddam Hussein. 
we were we were we were giving him whatever he needed in order to not lose uh, in his war against Iran, a war that he Saddam had begun. It was a war of aggression. It was not a war of democracy in any sense. Uh, and 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 the outcome of that war led directly to the second Gulf War. How that happened? Well, uh, when when the when the first Gulf War of 1980 to 1988 ended more or less in a draw, but a draw that that we, the United States, had helped him achieve. A, a basically broke Saddam in, intent on reconstituting his own power in Iraq, turned to his creditors, notably the Kuwaitis, and said, hey, look, I was, I was fighting the Iranians on behalf of, of all of you Arab brothers, now, how about cutting me some slack and writing off my debt to you? When the, when the Kuwaiti said, heck no, that was enough for Saddam Hussein to say, that's fine, I'll just go ahead and absorb Kuwait into, into Iraq, leading to the second Gulf War. That's the one where we intervene against Saddam Hussein. Most Americans know it as Operation Desert Storm. Operation Desert Storm seems to end in a great historic victory a victory that in the eyes of both policymakers and many ordinary, ordinary Americans seems to affirm uh, our status as, as the sole military superpower, uh, as possessors of something like military supremacy. I argue that that conclusion was a misleading one, that actually Operation Desert Storm ends inconclusively. How so? Saddam survives, and instead of the U.S. being able to go home, having claimed a great victory, in the wake of Desert Storm, U.S. forces begin to garrison the Gulf in very substantial numbers on a permanent basis. And indeed, although nobody pays much attention to it, hostilities directed against Saddam Hussein continue throughout the 1990s. They're low-level hostilities. No Americans are getting killed, or at least very few of them. Uh, and, so, and so the second Gulf War, which historians would say dates from 90 to 91, I would say dates from 1990 to 2001. It's during that period, if I remember correctly, that the, the administration of George H.W. Bush, under the guidance of... Cheney and Powell and Wolfowitz, who are then members of his administration, come up with the defense strategy for the 1990s, which is to say that America is the supreme power, yes. develops and develops the doctrines of preemptive strike and forward deterrence, and says that we're prepared to um, fight two wars on two continents and, and uh, essentially... Uh, boss the world. That comes out of the 1990s, right? It does, and, and I think more precisely, it comes out of the confluence of the end of the Cold War with Operation Desert Storm. Right. You know, we have, to, we have to remember the extent at that time, most of us, me included, had come to see the Cold War as the definition of international politics, the conflict that that organized everything and was never going to end, I thought, many people thought. Suddenly it ends. It ends on terms favorable to the United States. 
people like Cheney and Wolfowitz are in the Pentagon saying, well, what, what does the end of the Cold War mean? And while they're wrestling with that question, uh, uh, the second Gulf War occurs, leading to what they see as this great historic victory. And, and therefore, they conclude that what the end of the Cold War means is that the United States is now indeed the sole superpower. And that the United States is in a position, they believe, to really determine the fate of the planet. And, and that it is the possession of this enormous military power which will enable the United States to determine the fate of the planet. It will, it will enable us to prevent the rise of any so-called peer competitor. It will enable us to police the international order on terms favorable to us. And, and, and so, yes, it is, it is at this particular moment that the, in a sense, one of the greatest expressions of American hubris uh, emanates from Washington and sets the stage, I think, for much of what is then to follow. I remember that in the spring of 2001, either in May or in June, before the uh, destruction of the Trade Towers, Charles Krauthammer, a leading neoconservative thinker in Washington, in Time magazine declares America to be the greatest empire since Rome, and that our will is, is uh, supreme, and, and we are invulnerable, and we make up our own reality. What is real is what we say is real. I mean, this is literally three months before the attack on the World Trade Tower. <laughs> well, but, but, but the, only, the only thing I'd say is it wasn't that that line of thought was not somehow limited to neoconservative circles. There's another phrase that was current at the time, and is actually still current today, the indispensable nation. Well, that was coined by Madeleine Albright and adopted by Bill Clinton to a very considerable extent. The Democrats in the 1990s shared these perceptions uh, and, and, and believed that we possessed the capacity and the wisdom uh, to, to remake the international order in ways that we thought appropriate. So the war for the greater Middle East, in, in my narrative, continues in the 1990s and, and finds Clinton you know, leading the charge in Somalia, finds Clinton intervening in the Balkans, finds Clinton uh, attacking Saddam Hussein, attacking al-Qaeda training camps uh, in Afghanistan. Again, there's no coherent sense of strategy, uh, but there is this increased military activism somehow premised on the conviction that if we drop enough bombs or kill enough people, that some sort of favorable outcome is going to result. And it doesn't. And even when 9-11 occurs, uh, a, a clear indicator of how counterproductive our military efforts uh, up to that point have been in the greater Middle East, the response of the George W. Bush administration is basically double down, try harder, em embark upon a vast undertaking to remake large parts of the greater Middle East. That's what the invasion of Iraq in 2003, I call it the third Gulf War. That's what the third Gulf War was supposed to do. They expected an easy victory in Iraq, and they further expected that that easy victory would 
translate into greater American clout and influence uh, that would enable us then to basically remake the entire region. But of course, the third Gulf War didn't produce a great victory. It produced a quagmire. That's because we had no idea what to do after we knocked down everything in Baghdad, right? No doubt about it. I mean, one of the things that, that I saw in, in preparing this book is the extent to which the planners of our military uh, interventions viewed intervention as a, as, a, as a technical problem. It was a matter of, of how to assemble forces, how to, how to move them long distances, how to sustain them in unfriendly environments. But they paid remarkably little attention to the history of the region, to, to the religious uh, and religious divisions uh, that, that animate politics. And they, they, they suffered, or at least U.S. forces suffered badly for their failure to attend to these historical, cultural, and religious dimensions of the problem. You have a wonderful sentence in the book where you say, Beginning in 1980, U.S. forces ventured into the greater Middle East to reassure, warn, intimidate, suppress, pacify, rescue, liberate, eliminate, transform, and overawe. And the result, even by the third Gulf War, is we have actually diminished our moral strength. Our, we have shown our military to be n- by no means uh, invincible or supreme. We, we have, intending a magnificent demonstration, we have shown us to be much weaker and more confused <laughs> than, than our enemies. <laughs> we, we have. I mean, we've made things worse. Yeah. And we've made things worse at great, great cost to ourselves and at even greater cost to those who, who we claim to be liberating or rescuing. And I have to say, one of the things that so frustrates me is the absolute unwillingness to acknowledge the consequences of what we've done. So if you fast forward to the most recent presidential election, Clinton versus Trump, they didn't talk about what we've been doing in the greater Middle East. They didn't talk about Afghanistan, the longest war in our history, apart from occasional references to ISIS and the, and the promises of what they would go do if, if, if given a chance to go after ISIS. There was no serious reflection on what U.S. military efforts in that part of the world have yielded and, and, and why we should expect that simply trying harder is going to produce a different outcome than we've achieved over the past three and a half decades. Go back briefly. We, we left off the narrative with the third Gulf War, which is the one we started in 2003. What's the fourth Gulf War? Well, the fourth Gulf War is the one that we're in right now. When Barack Obama runs for the presidency in 2008 against John McCain, you know, John McCain says, hey, vote for me because... I know that we're winning the Iraq war. And he was referring to the Petraeus surge of 2007, 2008. Obama says, 
elect me president because I know the Iraq war is stupid and I'll end it. And then I'll go win the Afghanistan war because that's a necessary war. And Americans elected Obama and he, he, he thought that he did bring the Iraq war to an end. Last U.S. troops withdraw in December 2011. And yet, with the rise of ISIS, we're back in it by 2014. So there is a fourth Gulf War underway now. It's a complicated war because it involves not simply the fight against ISIS, but it involves the, the way the U.S. has become drawn into the Syrian civil war, where, where you, need, you need a scorecard to keep track of who's on whose side and, and what anybody's trying to achieve. That said, Obama's other promise to win the Afghanistan war, guess what? That hasn't happened. And so that war, which began in 2001, is now over 15 years old. And truly, there is no end in sight. Frankly, there is no end in sight of the larger enterprise that is the war for the greater Middle East. I mean, I note in the book, for example, and this is another thing that I think where the media attention has has been utterly inadequate, and that's the expansion of the U.S. military presence across Africa, all the way to the western uh, the western part of Africa, all undertaken under the notion that Islamic extremism is is spreading, and that it threatens the United States, and that U.S. military power can somehow uh, provide an antidote to that threat. And that spreading to Africa has been accomplished largely under the Obama administration. Is that correct? No question about it. I mean, I, I, nobody will take a backseat to me in decrying the recklessness and the folly of the George W. Bush administration. But the Obama administration also, also has a lot to answer for. Obama did learn that invading and occupying countries with hopes of transforming them was a dumb idea, wasn't going to work. But Obama has continued the war, simply employing other means, relying on drones, relying on airstrikes, relying on special operations forces. And that, and that approach has reduced the cost to the United States. You know, our casualties are much, much lower today. But that approach has not been more effective than the approach of George W. Bush. It's also been probably as expensive. Do we have any number, any, any idea of how much money it has cost us over the last, say, 25 years, our, our wars in the greater Middle East? Well, there's some, there's some pretty serious research done by Brown University. It's called the Costs of War Project. And I, I believe the current estimate is that and I think they're only doing the sort of the post 9-11 portion of this, but current estimates are total costs somewhere on the order of $7 trillion. Now, that's not $7 trillion expended to date. That's $7 trillion when you project what the costs are going to be. And a, a, a non-trivial part of those is veterans care, because we know in these present wars, for whatever reason, you know, the incidence of PTSD, for example, is far, far greater than it was in earlier wars, or at least or at least we have the capacity and the willingness to acknowledge PTSD. 
So we're going to be paying for these wars for literally for generations. And that's money down a rat hole. You know, that, that's money that, that could have gone to, quote unquote, making America, ma- making America great again. But it's going to go simply to providing care for vets. If you know any the casualties, not only American dead and wounded, but also Iraqi, Afghani, Syrian. Again, you know, no, nobody, nobody in the U.S. government is trying very hard to to rack up the body count. But I I believe that the best estimates since 9/11 are that we've killed well over 300,000 people. I saw a figure. I think it was just yesterday or the day before that the U.S. forces now claim to have killed somewhere between 40,000 and 50,000 ISIS fighters. And the, and the reason the reason that caught my eye is because the, I, the estimates I'd seen what, was that ISIS didn't even have 40,000 or 50,000 uh, fighters. So if, we, if we've killed that many, uh, they are demonstrating a pretty good ability to replenish themselves. So we have spent that much human life and that much money really to no successful end. And you end this book, Andrew, with with four points, and, and I'm going to remind you of them because they they bear on our present circumstance. You say that those responsible for formulating U.S. policy in the greater Middle East like to think that they know what what they're doing. <laughs> Is that right? So that's one illusion. Well, and they don't. I mean, the, the, it seems to me the facts are manifest. Right. That the, the level of ignorance on display has been astonishing. The second illusion is that we take for granted that as the sole global superpower, the United States has not only the wisdom but also the wherewithal to control or direct the forces of history. That's an equally absurd position. It is, although, you know, sadly, it's one that's, uh, I think, deeply embedded in the marrow of the American people. The sense of chosenness, the sense of destiny goes back to John Winthrop in 1630, although it was, I think, reinvigorated by the results of the, of the Cold War and, in a sense, also by the events of 9-11 itself. Thirdly, that the U.S. military power offers the most expeditious means of assuring that universal freedom prevails. In other words, that all the questions can be solved with military. I mean, I wrote a book a decade ago called The New American Militarism that argued at the time that in the wake of the of the Cold War, we had we as a people had succumbed to a form of militarism. And frankly, a decade later, I wouldn't change a, a word in that book. It is it is a great unacknowledged aspect of our nation in the present moment uh, that we are a we are the people on the planet who most believe in the efficacy of military power even though our reliance on military power has not yielded what we expected. You're an historian, and I'm not asking you for predictions because you're not a prophet. On the other hand, fortunately so, by the way. I mean, I have great faith in historians and 
relatively little in profits. But on the other, the other hand, in terms of that last point about military power, the Trump administration's appointments for Secretary of Defense, National Security, I mean, we have three generals that will be directing our future stance in the world. And so I don't see much chance of that last assumption changing. I don't either. I mean, you know, if he had appointed a, a, a general as Secretary of State, we could have start, started referring to it as the Trump junta. Right. Uh, I think it's I think it's astonishing. I, I don't, you know, I, if you take General Mattis, Defense Secretary, I think in many respects he's uh, he's certainly well respected and perhaps deserves to be. But even in his case, we're talking about somebody who spent his entire adult life within an institution that breeds, I think, a, a particular worldview, uh, a set of priorities, and they are not those that we need to have in a defense secretary at this juncture, unless we simply accept the fact, accept it as reality, that we are condemned to be at war from now until perpetuity. And it could be that that's what Trump thinks, uh, but it shouldn't be what we the people think. Well, that was what Rumsfeld thought, if I, if I, unless I remember incorrectly. I mean, didn't they talk about the long war that was going to last at least 50 years? The difference, I think, is that in Rumsfeld's day, he believed that any fight that we got ourselves into, we would win the fight. Now, that fight, in his judgment, might not have been the last fight, but whatever fight we're, we were in, we, we were going to win it. And where we are today in 2016, I think those expectations are gone. Because <laughs> the fights that we're in, we don't win, we manage. And they go on and on, again, with no end in sight. It's, it's, and it's extraordinary that the American people don't stand up and say, hey, wait a second. That's not what we signed up for. This is unacceptable. But instead, the, the war for the greater Middle East just continues on autopilot. That is a fine way to end this, this conversation, Andrew, that I... Truly uh, enjoyed talking to you. I, I admire your book, America's War for the Greater Middle East by Andrew Basovich, published by Random House. And it, it's an illuminating book, and I would hope as many people read it as possible. And, and thank you very much for coming on to talk today. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>